Three Brothers Talking, episode 74. That's right, episode 74. We're recording this out of order. How about that? Oh, I didn't think about that when you said that. <laughs> That's because we never know what uh, what order we've actually recorded these in. We half the time don't know what the actual episode number is. I, I, I don't know actually what episode we're on most of the time. We're almost to 100, it looks like. That's a good thing. That's right. We are almost to 100. Does that mean we're professionals? Yes. We're about oh, to get man. to the uh, 10,000 hour mark of is that podcasting. When, is that when we get to the make those podcast millions right there? That's right. When we get uh, to 100, 100 <laughs> episodes. Well, we should be we should be at um, 75 right with the Christmas episode, um, which is partially why we are recording this out of order because Christmas is right around the corner. And we've got travel going on with all of our families. And so we needed to like, we needed to bank up some episodes so that we could release them at the right times. <laughs> so um, this is David, by the way. I'm Jeremy, by the way. And Andrew's not here. So he is, that's he everybody. Is not here. Yeah, Andrew is doing some of that travel thing that we just talked about. So uh, this is a, a book club episode, chapter 13 of Heaven Misplaced. And uh, we made it through both of our families, although more Jeremy than me uh, had Jeremy. Jeremy's family got through a very rough week where like everybody was sick, not with like the sickness. Right. But uh, no, tiresome week. But we got People get it. sick. People just get sick regular sometimes. They get sick, man. It happens. No matter what you do, you're just like, ah, I got sick. Yep. And so we're here. We made it through. Uh the odds I'll were against us, but we made it here. The, the the Saturday night after Micah having a cough and not sleeping for like three days, I finally got Faith to like leave. And like at one point, he finally like Faith take Maddie to get something. So Maddie just likes to poke and prod because she's one doesn't know any better. Yeah. And Micah is saying, I I just don't want to feel bad after like an Aww. hour of him just like oh, like that. Like all right, <laughs> we're at the point where we can do something. Yeah, but yeah man, it's a. Uh, we got through it. God, God is gracious it. and kind, and we survived. There you go. Gave you just enough strength <laughs> to get through it. Um, that's tough, Quite man. Honestly, yes. You, you hear your kids say, yes. "I just don't want to feel bad." That's goodness. Um, yep. And well, we got a tree, so that's there still you works, go. So, do you get your tree yet? We did. We have a tree. We got a tree uh, like two days after Thanksgiving, and uh, got it up that weekend. And uh, it's doing good. Stay. Hopefully, it stays nice and green Did and you everything. Cut it down? No, we don't cut it down. We uh, we go to oh. uh, a greenhouse near here, and uh, it's it's still a pretty fun place to go and get a tree. They have all the trees lit up. I mean, there there there's little lights and everything. If you go at night, that's still a pretty fun place to get a tree. There you go. Yeah, you did it. Yeah, um, we can dig right into. Uh, the meat of this chapter here in chapter 13, because this is um, a very, very good chapter. <laughs> as as it, opposed to the other chapters? Uh, yeah, which stink. No. I was very, um, so I read, like just reading other um, books on similar subjects. Because as we've stated, the Amil perspective is very, is very similar, yeah. especially in this regard, to the post-mill perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, so with that, um, I kind of liked his like brevity on the subject of like I'm not going to go into in depth kind of thing. Um, it was a very like overview of the subject. 
yeah, he kind of, um, the name of the chapter is 666 and all that. Uh, subtitle, Leftover Bits from the Old Way of Thinking Part 2. Um, so he's talking about 666. He's talking about... Um, what is 666? The Number of the Beast is... Nah. Um, is a song by Iron Maiden, right? Um, but it's that also uh, it's also obviously it's in Revelation, um, pretty prominent term. Um, tons of right, just like we talked about the amount of uh, Olivet discourse in the last episode, in this one or the last book club, this one, like obviously a lot of people have written a lot of things about the mark of the beast and the number of the beast and six 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 and. Um, all these things that seem to be very fantastical, right? In the book of Revelation. Um, and so he kind of goes through a lot of that stuff. He talks a lot about, um, you know, the idea of the Antichrist in Revelation in here. Um, and he tries to break down some of the symbols from Revelation in a much more sensical straightforward way which is the same sort of way that we talked about everything in the Olivet discourse right trying to yes. trying to very very much the same yeah trying to get rid of it's consistent and that's what we want when we read scripture we want a consistent hermeneutic which means we want the rules that we apply to interpreting scripture we want those to work and be the same all the time like we don't want to use we don't want to have double standards, basically, is what we're saying. Um, but one thing he points out at the very beginning of this chapter, which I think is fair, and maybe some people have already thought about it, as you and I have talked about it, Jeremy, is uh, one is how our endless speculation and weird interpretations of the book in Revelation have turned this really powerful book for the church into a very obscure and scary book for the church. Um, which is something I care about a lot. It really bothers me that the book of Revelation is seen as not relevant at all or just weird or just only about some mysterious future. So we don't even really need to teach it because it weirds people out. That makes me a yeah. little mad. <laughs> well, and also, and it divorces how we read the rest of scripture. Granted, it is written differently. So you read it slightly differently. But if you have the, the stance of this letter written by John on the island of Patmos, um, as a revelation like verse one of revelation one revelation of jesus christ who gave god gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place yeah. he made it known by sending his angels to servant um so blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and are blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near i guess from that if that if that is the point is you read that and it's like, okay, it's supposed to be encouraging and also give warnings, but also encourage that this is prophecy, meaning it's not some obscure thing. And it's also near. So yeah. like, hey, um, be ready. Not 2,000 years from now ready. Yeah. Um, and granted, there's parts of it that we can all agree aren't fulfilled yet, but for the vast majority of it. Um, it seems pretty urgent. It seems pretty like, hey, this is an urgent thing. And also, since he's writing writing two churches in the area, we've read other books too. Yeah. Um, like, if Ephesus isn't like 
a church in Canal Winchester today. Like, no, it's a church <laughs> of Ephesus in, in, in Ephesus at that time frame. I think it's funny that I think that the way that a lot of people read Revelation today is they can recognize that the beginning of Revelation is written to specific churches. But then somehow they think like after chapter three, it becomes super far off and futurist. But even though in even though in the first three chapters, it calls out churches specifically by name, that doesn't mean yeah. the rest of it isn't also written to those same churches. Like it's right. it's this whole thing is written to them. Um just like Colossians was written to Colossae um, in the same the, way. And it wasn't obviously written, if the entire point of the book is not is written to be read aloud, then it's not meant to be like, to get out your um, graphic displays and write everything down to get like timelines. <laughs> um, yeah. They didn't do that. They didn't do that with this. And, and moving forward, I guess that's my transition into the discussing of the six 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 in Revelation thirteen. Well, let's talk about uh, let's talk the about beast. the literal thing first. The question yep. of being literal, um, because that's that's like I feel like that's sorry. I feel like that's a precursor to that. Like, yep. as he points out, whenever you go to study Revelation, the question will come up: Do you believe this book literally? And. That's a fair question. I think it's a good question to ask, right? Of somebody who's reading scripture because we are mm-hmm. people who believe in the Bible. So we take it literally. Um, but what we need to do is break down what that word literally means. So if somebody were to say that to me of literally, I'm going to ask him like, well, are you asking if I believe this book is inspired by God? Yes. I believe it's God's word. Are you asking me if I believe it? Yes, I do. Um, but are you asking me, do you believe uh, literally in terms of um, like a 21st century lens? It's like, no, I guess I don't. But what we have to understand is that everybody, when you encounter Revelation, the book of Revelation, Everyone in the world who reads it has to do some kind of figurative interpretation. Mm-hmm. We, we're afraid to say this because I understand the fear. The fear is if it's not literal, we can make this, which is scripture, say anything we want it to say, and that's not good. Because guess what? It's not good to twist scripture and make it say whatever you want it to say. Um, but the goal isn't necessarily, like in one sense, our goal is to take, by, take it literally but the greater sense, the greater goal is to take it faithfully. Like you want to, when the Bible is speaking in literal terms, you want to take it literally. We talked about this in the last episode, I think of the book club where like if the Bible's talk, if it's talking about how big the area of Canaan was in Abraham's day, it's being literal, right? It's saying mm-hmm. like, it's this many cubits long. When it talks about the ark, it's being literal, plainly literal. But when it, there's a prophecy about um, wheels within wheels in Ezekiel, or um, when there's a prophecy in Daniel, and it's an, or when there's a prophecy in Revelation, or at other times when like a, there's just something plainly analogous or figurative being spoken, then in order to be faithful to it, you're not necessarily taking it 
literally, like you have to understand the meaning that is being communicated. That's the goal is to understand what, what it's actually trying to teach you. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I get that. So that's where, that's where people who come from a more dispensational background often begin to trip up with either an amillennial perspective or a postmillennial perspective is the feeling of like, well, you're taking a lot of things symbolically. And my response to that, and I think his, historically the reform response to that has been, yes, because these are symbols. Like, so we think we're getting symbols here from the text. So we're not making things up. We're trying to interpret the symbols as symbols. We're not trying to make the symbols into literal things. I mean, Revelation is an apocalyptic book that's a genre of literature that is all about symbols and signs. And even in the first, I remember, I forget what sermon I heard this in, but there, the pastor was talking about how the, um, the very beginning of the book talks about, it uses this word that means to teach using symbols. So like, it's just a symbolic book. So the question is, what did these symbols mean when John wrote them? What was he trying to teach with these symbols? Because everybody has to be figurative at some point. Even if you think, right. even if you think you're a literal dispensationalist, Israel means Israel, you know, and um, 666 means a number of 666 and whatever. Like the mark of the beast is a physical mark. Like, yet still, whenever I bet whenever you read things about locusts, gathering on the borders or you know um things like that i bet you get at least a little figurative because i bet you don't believe the bible is telling you that massive locusts are gonna um start swarming the earth and i bet you don't believe that there's an actual dragon that's gonna come and sink a city or something like that (laughs) you know Mm. so we're dealing with a symbolic book so in order to be faithful to scripture we have to look at scripture and say okay is this poetic? Is this historical? Is this figurative? Um, because just, you know, you don't, you're not honoring, I'm, I'm like hammering this home because I think it's such a big point. So this is my last version of hammering it home. If somebody writes a love poem to his wife and he says, like he uses a figurative language of like, honey, your hair is as beautiful as three, you know, an, a beautiful orchard of 300 trees or something like that. It's really cheesy and it's lame, but um, you can tell I don't write love poems a lot. Yeah. You need to do better on that. Yeah. (laughs) But uh, I feel bad for Rachel. Yeah. So if you were going to honor, like his wife wouldn't really be understanding him. If she just said, Oh, you think I look like a tree and my hair is green. Right. In order to actually honor and understand what her husband is saying, she has to take him on the symbolic understanding of what he's communicating to her. So that's what we're trying to do. And so when we get these things in the book, like the number of the beast, um, or like the mark of the beast, or like the dragon, or like the whore of Babylon, or like the city of Babylon, we have to understand that these are symbolic things. So our duty is to interpret them in light of other scripture which goes back to other episodes we've done on this. I'm sorry. I just talked a lot. Take it where you want to take it. I mean, I have nothing else to add. I think you hammered it home fine. I, I get my only comment was I felt bad for Rachel. <laughs> um, no, I think that's a, that's a fair point in assessment um, of what I think we have to do the book is looking at it 
at face value where you can. And then from there, look at the literary structure of how he's presenting the information. Exactly. Because um, if you don't do that, then you're going to get tongue tied. If you don't look at how this is written either. And also one of the things I remember getting encouraged about is, hey, reading it straight through mm-hmm. versus in pieces. So if you read it straight through, like the entire thing will take you 60 minutes, just about um, average. That's like the average speed. Uh, so you spend 60 minutes. If you read it through, you can see a lot of the same symbols and terms come back around like the number seven and similar like seven um seven bowls and seven horns and, and all these things like because it's written in a certain way yeah to um help give information quickly um but also i guess pique the imagination and it's i mean if you read ezekiel and all stuff like the imagery if you just look take for face value is super weird um yeah like the whole wheels and then wheels like this i don't know what this is gonna help me with half the time um but you uh take it for what it is in that context and you realize yeah they don't literally mean the wheels with them wheels with eyes here like it's not or or what like it's not a there's parts that are literal and parts that are descriptive um yeah in a different way well it's like yeah and and that's what ezekiel saw but that what he saw was a symbol um, right, and that symbol was teaching something to the people of Israel and to us. Um, one of the things that's helped me a lot, and and this is what Doug is getting at in the last chapters, is how the Book of Revelation it depends heavily on Old Testament allusions to help you interpret it. Like the Book yeah. of Revelation has so many allusions, either direct or like you know, um, you know, adjacent references to the Old Testament. That it is, it's insane. Um, even well, like we a, talked about the locusts, like even that is a reference to Joel, the book of Joel. Yeah. So it's there's and that's so a lot many of times you we divorce. I think even cog, um, self-consciously we divorce the old and the new testament to a degree that we don't think that the prophecies could be written similarly enough. Even though if we sit there and say, "Hey, the same God breathed through the Holy Spirit breathed this thing." Uh, for people to write it, it would make sense that some of the same imagery would come across both both areas. Well, and how that works is like in the book of Joel, the locusts are um, that like the book of Revelation kind of uses that reference to talk about armies. And um, that's like what that's what that meant in the book of Joel, too. Um, right. Or even talked about last week with the cosmic. Um, every time like you see like cosmic things, it's the city's lights going out or like exactly. some age ending. Uh, it's the same things. And a Jewish audience or even a Greek audience with the way literature is written versus how it's written now um, would would understand that better than we would today. Because um, these people, most of them, if they weren't Jews or if they were Jews, I'm sorry would know the prophets and yeah. know the prophecies they've they've written they've heard them um for years and would not sit there and say oh this is just about Jesus' second coming um there'd be more to that context than just that yeah and this goes to something we said earlier like the book of revelation stands in the context of the whole of scriptures so we need to interpret it like we interpret other scriptures we need to do that um, especially in its connection to the book of Daniel, right? In the book of Daniel, yeah. Daniel's given a prophecy about things that are far off, and then he's told to seal up a scroll. And then what do we see in Revelation? 
we see a scroll being opened up and revealed. Yeah, keep that scroll open. And yeah, and John says, should I seal it up? And the angel's like, no, keep it open because this is about to happen. Right. Which about hel- to happen 2,000 years. Which helps, yeah, which helps us date the book of um, Revelation. I believe that the book of Revelation was written before AD 70. You believe that as well, Jeremy? Yeah. Yes, we both believe this. We yes. affirm this. Um, and th- the primary reason for that for me is just how it seems it describes um, describes so many of the things that happened in AD 70, like the destruction of the temple and, and the destruction of Jerusalem. Right. Whereas, ev- quote-unquote, evidence for it being after AD 70 is stuff that's not in Scripture, and the evidence for it being yeah, before is in Scripture. Which he mentions here, and, and I remember hearing that because um, one of our friends and I are going through church history, and Irenaeus has like one line written in one letter where it could have been predetermined, predisposed to say that. Um, Irenaeus, an early church father, and if I'm not mistaken, was one of John's like, which I could be wrong. I can't verify um, that. I can't verify that, but maybe we'll, we'll verify that later. Um, but yeah, it was like in a letter as far as like when he thought the verb it was written later at like 180 or something yeah so quickly this is what doug talks about and the advantages that come from um um this like early date of the book a few few pieces pieces of it um he says this enables us to make sense of the prophecies in a way which fits them literally quote unquote literally and also dates the book correctly history happened in a certain way but for the creative person, the future is infinitely malleable. Doug goes on to say, this means that the book was not meaningless to its original recipients, the seven churches yeah. of Asia. John says to his first readers, let him who has, un- let him who has understanding hear. Um, and then he goes into um, the number of the beast. So we can, we can dig into that. And I think that this is a good example of the hermeneutical principles that we're talking about. Like we said earlier, like we take something at face value, we look and see how it applies to the rest of scripture. You know, um, if it's, mm-hmm. we, we look and see what genre of scripture we're reading, we take it at face value. We see what other scriptures have to say about it that help us interpret it. And we understand also, we try to understand what the first readers probably would have thought when they read it. Um, right. Which brings us to Nero and the number of the beast. Wait, what? I, I thought know. it was a chip. I thought it was a chip. Yes. Like so an implant. We haven't the mark of the beast doesn't come up directly in all this. I'll really quickly say that I think it's really pretty obvious in the mark of the beast. Well, in the book of Revelation, you're given there's two marks in the book of Revelation, right? There's a mark of the beast and there's a mark of the lamb. So mm-hmm. people are defined, just like earlier on in the book of Revelation, people are defined by um, being inhabitants of the earth or being followers of uh, the Lamb. So it seems like throughout the book of Revelation, the mark of the beast and um, nobody makes as much of it. It's funny to me that everybody makes a big deal about the mark of the beast, but nobody talks about people being marked for the Lamb. Um <laughs> I don't know why. The one sounds scarier. Yeah. I, and so the mark of the beast is a symbolic idea communicating um, 
the people who have surrendered, people who belong not to Jesus. That's what it means. Yeah. Um, to have the mark of the beast on you is to not belong to Jesus. So people who know Christ, follow Christ, believe in Christ, don't have to worry about taking the mark of the beast. If I, if that's clear, like you had the mark of Christ uh, on you by virtue of being his child. So the mark of the beast is symbolic of accepting the world's way, following the world's way, believing the world's way, um, and surrendering to that rather than surrendering to Christ. It's not about getting a, uh, a shot in the arm, shall we say? And it's, and it's not about getting a microchip anywhere or a barcode. Oh yeah. (laughs) Um, now, in a certain sense, it could be about that in a certain sense, but it's a, it is primarily a symbol and not a the book of Revelation is talking about a, a symbol, thing. not a physical thing. It will obviously manifest in physical things at times, but it's primarily a symbol. Yep. All right. We're good. We've, we've crossed that little narrow bridge. There we go. So now everyone can be happy. Now, um, now everybody can be happy, Jeremy, while you tell them and, that Nero was... And take a deep breath. You can tell them that Nero was... Uh, uh, maybe the Antichrist and make him mad. Um, well, and so that's super interesting too. If you've read some other commentators about like Antichrist and the spirit of Antichrist, have you heard that argument, David, about yes. like Antichrist? Okay. Um, we're not going to go into that now, but I was just curious. Um, that'd be an interesting, I guess, podcast topic yes. as far as papacy and stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, anyway, but Nero, um, I think it's pretty definitive from our previous discussion. And I'll follow up with Doug is saying that um, the mark of the beast or the beast himself. And the number um, of the beast. The number of the beast being 666 would represent Emperor Nero um, mm-hmm. of Rome, uh, who's obviously a past figure, not an upcoming future figure. Yes. Um, and there are many reasons for that. I think Doug does a good job, like I said earlier. He does a very quick breeze over of everything. I've yeah. read much more in depth reasons why like even the breaking down of the textual variant being 616 in latin which is super interesting that the variant in latin still uh <laughs> Confirms in nero. still has yeah. <laughs> nero on, like still means emperor nero caesar yeah um, it doesn't give you a different name it actually end up giving no. you the same name i mean the historical context and and honestly i would say don't take our word for it i would say just look up nero and who he was, um, he was basically the epitome of a beast of a character. Oh yeah, throughout history. I mean, he actually—I don't know how explicit we want to get be, but he would dress up like a beast and do very, very bad things. He would. That's he all. would. We can say it. I think. Like well, warning. I mean, I think my kids might listen. Yeah, to it's this, fair point. So okay, my kids. He would dress up car. like an animal and assault people in prison. How about that? Yeah, men and women. Men yes. and women. Um, Primarily Christians, honestly, at the times, because he was on the threat. Shortly after him was when the persecution truly started. Yeah, and there's um, he kicked Tid- it off. Titus. He really kicked it yeah, off. Yeah, he was the main kickoff. <laughs> well, it's because he, to your point, he committed suicide, burned down some things, and then blamed it. Yeah. That was blamed on Christians, yeah. which then sparked all the persecution further in the Roman Empire. Yeah, and um, he would, I mean, he was, and he was, as Doug points out, he was the head of Rome, which is the, which Doug calls the great Satan, which is. The great sin, Satan, um, the great Babylon. The great Babylon, the great adversary, and also a great, a great picture of the world and the worldly system. Um, 
Yeah, and I think going through the textual variants, like that's a pretty straightforward thing. So he does a great job of just go ahead. Explain explain really fast what it means that Nero had so, the number of the beast. So other languages, not America, uh, or not English, we use English <laughs> and American. <laughs> um, use Roman new like Rome like the Romans um, yeah. use numerals and numbers uh, letters simultaneously. Yeah, which so, we know thanks Arabic, to the Super Bowl. Right. Otherwise, we wouldn't know. Yeah. Um, or like variants or something mm-hmm. potentially, but um, so Latin and Greek and Hebrew all uh, use letters and numbers simultaneously for variants or for um for like I would yeah if I was calling system. yeah numbers and words are both spelled out with letters. How we right. think of them as similar. Letters. How you can even do like even binary in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. Similar. How that's a language and a number set. Yes. Um, so if you take the Hebrew, which is the Hebrew word for Nero, Caesar, N- Nero, Caesar of Nero. I don't know how you'd say it. Uh, Neron, Neron Caesar. Well, yeah, how they say it in Hebrew is Neron Caesar. Yeah. Um, and then the Latin is Nero, Nero Kaiser with like an I and an A, somewhere like that. Okay. So in the Hebrew, it's those numbers add up to six 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 those roman numerals do yeah and you don't need to massage the keynotes here you don't need to change anything it's a straightforward yeah this is it um and then similarly some of the textual variants we get from that time period because these are letters yeah this is a letter that was transcribed and rewritten and passed um have it in latin as 616 which is still the same name yeah it's just a lot la- um, yeah it's the latin version of his name yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> so, yeah, I think that's pretty cut and dry. I don't think there's no. Um, and also, if you go through the emperors themselves, which is also a very compelling argument, like he says that there will be, uh, there are also seven kings, even though kings are not Caesars, um, technically. Yeah. But I mean, you could even say the same thing as presidents could fit here. Like it'd be a similar leaders of a great nation. Yeah. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet to come. Um, the first five Caesars, even though, which he makes a valid point, some people will say, well, Julius never went by Caesar, like, well, his last name was Caesar, and he <laughs> lived like the emperor. He, is- he never was called emperor. Yeah. Um, Julius, Augustus is second, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, and then um, the sixth Caesar was Nero, who was reigning when Revelation was currently written. Um, so that would be five before, and one currently is. Exactly. Um, so yeah, if you want to kick off the next parts of why we think that, which is basically straight from the book. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like I, in that, so also like it talk, you know, Revelation talks about the seven, uh, seven, like there's seven hills, right? Rome is seated on seven yep. hills and the city on seven hills. And then it talks about the seven, um, heads of the beast, yep. um, which are these, which is also seven horns and Daniel. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm pretty convinced of that as well. Um, the 42 months, right? We've heard about this. Like, if you've read Left Behind, if you've read the Bible, if you grew up like we did, you seen charts and heard scary sermons about 42 months of this and persecution. Um, so this is, Rev- Jeremy read earlier from Revelation 17. This is from Revelation 13. Mm-hmm. And he, which is the... um. I believe the he there is referring, well, it's referring to Hero, 
Nero, but we're going to get to that. It's the beast. Uh, the beast. So the beast was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. It's Re- Revelation 13. So here's the thing. Well, how long did Nero do it? Nero uh, persecuted. He was the first emperor to really persecute the Christians, and he did it for, um, as Doug quotes here, November 64 to June 68. If we do the math, that's exactly 42 months. Snap. David Prophecy couldn't be that that literal. Well, here's the thing. Sometimes, like, right, the whole charge against all mill post mill people is that, like, you're not being literal. But this is the this is the advantage of like having that ability to read things on their face as part of your hermeneutic and being historical is reading that and just saying, oh, that makes sense. Like, this is a powerful ruler of the earth whose name adds up to this number and he ruled for 42 months and he was a beast and he was beastly. His nickname was the beast. And he was beastly to Christians. Um, Yeah. I think. And and he's the sixth of the head. He's he's the sixth one to come along. And then the seventh one will come out, come and destroy the city. Exactly. Which will be his, because they, they mentioned that later. But I, I, one interesting thing about it, which he kind of talks briefly about in here, is being able to blaspheme. Um, and I thought he did a fair topic of discussing how, not just in the persecution of the church, but um, how, especially when you get to Nero, and really after Julius Caesar, it started to build um, of actual like Caesar worship, similar to you have like with pharaohs of old and what we, we kind of still do today with our leaders. Um, not to this extent, but like our leaders are God, um, mm. for lack of a better term, like the worship of him and how that was blaspheming part of that 42 months of blaspheming. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what it is. Like the beast is, um, like in one sense it's Nero and maybe this is part of me being all millennial still. So I can't say like, Definitively, yeah, like 100%. so. The but the beast is also like, um, it's more than it's, it's also a, the beast was, shall we say, a manifestation of the world system, right? To replace God, to blaspheme God, and so that's the same, like, so Nero was a manifestation of that, and it all, and he right. also seems to be perhaps the most poignant one that the scriptures were warning the first century church about, about at that time. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. And that's something that we talked about earlier about these spirits of antichrist. Like, cause this John and first John uses the same kind of antichrist word in the Greek. Um, or he, I can't remember. Antichrist, the same antichrist and rapture. People would be surprised to see how rare words those actually are in the Bible. <laughs> right. For how much we try to build off of those words um, and how they're not actually like in the scriptures that much, I just think it makes more sense for us to build our system of theology. Like, don't try to isolate those words because you're only going to find like one or two verses of each, right? So let's read all of scripture and see how they all like fit into the other words that we have a lot more of, for example. Well, uh, yeah, and so I, I'm comfortable too saying this is like a pretty good manifestation of the beast and being Nero being that example. Yeah. The primary warning to the Christians in this time would be um, one step back 
Um, we talked about Daniel. Like, if you read the beginning of thirteen, which could be a little bit of homework, in reading through Daniel, discussing like the be- the beasts and the horns and all that stuff, like it looks very similar structure wise and word usage wise. Yeah. Um, so I guess just further, uh, I guess encouragement to read the old and the new together. That's one cohesive yes. um, story. Yeah, let me read. I want to read the closing of this chapter real yep. fast, and then I want to actually kind of jump back for a second and end on a quote that Doug has about um, that Doug has about like the um, Jesus judging Nero, destroying Nero, and how that impacts us. But so this is the very end of the chapter. This is kind of about after after the other. Um, emperors come along. So, the Jewish revolt, when it came, was utterly crushed, but at the time it began, the revolt looked quite promising. Nero died in AD 68. The revolt began around the same time and did not end until three years later when Titus took the city of Jerusalem in 70. Remember that during this time, Rome was involved in her own civil wars and struggles for the throne, and the barbarians on the northern frontier were restless. It was a time of great turmoil and civil uncertainty for the Romans. Nevertheless, the war ended in AD 70 with the utter destruction of the Jewish state, just as Jesus had predicted. Olivet Discourse. Um, Doug goes on to say, the Jews had been the principal persecutors of Christ, or of the Christians, and this hindrance was now gone, although the Romans quickly replaced them. And Doug interprets this to say, at first, the great whore of Babylon rode the beast, Afterwards, the beast continued persecuting the church by itself. Um, I don't know exactly if Doug in post-mill traditionally believes this. This might be an overlap with all-mill, but as an all-mill person, I've always understood kind of the distinction between the whore and the beast, one being like military government coercive power in the beast versus um, false religion cultural power in um, the whore of Babylon. Um, I think that's a helpful way of understanding what those two symbols mean throughout scripture. Um, I don't, do you, do you agree with that? Do you think I, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Um, I don't have any additional, but yeah, no, I think that's a good way to interpret. I believe I picked that up from Riddlebarger. And I think that he also went on to say how um, Babylon was also symbolic of like monetary enticements of the world monetary power um because of it and like how it's pictured as like a trading city and everything in the book but mm-hmm. um anyway i want to I finish um with this quote that doug has about nero he says this we also see that nero provides us with a case study of what the lord jesus does when he wields the rod of iron rebellion against heaven is judged because of such judgments we are told that the kings of the earth will eventually bring their honor and glory into the new Jerusalem, Revelation 21, 24. But why would they see it this way if we don't see it this way? How can we preach to kings when we don't believe what they are commanded to believe? So I guess I wanted to end on that a little bit because that felt like a pretty poignant thing to end on. Um, that at the same time that Nero is all these things, he's also an example of Christ judging Nero um, and bringing his judgment, you know, on the earth. But that that 
I think this is maybe a teaser for the next chapter that we will go into. But there's this belief that like, well, do we believe that these scriptures apply to everyone, including uh, kings and rulers as well? And, mm-hmm. and why would we expect them to believe it if we don't really believe that they're bound to it or that it's about them or for them or anything like that? Yeah. So valid. What I don't know. Would do you have any uh, closing thoughts on the chapter? No, I don't have anything else to add. I think that I I think it was very well done, super succinct, easy to pick up to read, and also I hope would entice us to look at these characters more often, like all of them, and just like how they impacted the church throughout church history. Yeah, and I hope that I don't know. I hope that we did a good job explaining it. There was so much in that, and he does go very fast. He writes so much in so few words. It's kind of amazing. Um, yep. So I'd recommend this book based on the Olivet Discourse chapter and probably this chapter alone. So, yeah. yeah. Um, really good. <clears throat> so, I don't know. With that, you got any uh, recommendations, Jeremy? Um, no, but I, I think I decided what I want our next book club to be about earlier. Oh, man. Well, we'll talk about that off the the air. But um, yeah, no, I think that my only reco, I was uh, um, actually I had one earlier and I can't find my note. (laughs) Um, Ah, so I'm just going to, you know, kick it back to me. I'll get back. I'll kick it back to you and I'll maybe come up with one on episode 75 or 76, whichever one we're doing next. Okay. All right. So that means that my recommendation. Oh, man, I wasn't really ready with one either. Here's a, here's what I'll recommend. Um, we're getting near the end of the year, so I'll recommend uh, three three quick um, or two quick albums. How about how about that? One is uh, they're both they're both hardcore albums, so sorry about that. But one is an EP by a band called War of Ages. It's called Rama, and it's very good. Five songs, I think, four songs. Um, War of Ages is a band. Another band really good, I might have recommended it earlier, is Phineas. Um, I don't know how to spell Phineas off the top of my head, but uh, Phineas like the Bible character. And both of them came out this year. Both of them really good. So there you go. War- uh, actually, I do have one. I'm going to go back. Got- Skillet's Collide album, super good from like a long a time throwback. ago. A throwback. I threw back. I was working on stuff late the other night. I'm like, I'm just going to put on some old school Skillet and see what happens. And it, it seemed to work. So yeah, when, that made it enjoyable. When music is that old, you know it so well that it's like the perfect background music. Yeah, man. It it engages so. your mind in a way that you really enjoy it and it gives you joy. Also, but it doesn't make you think about it because you just you I guess know I, it. I, I <laughs> it's funny, like, man, a skillet is like of all the bands I thought growing up, there'd be one of the people I would not think would be like on the same page with us in many, many fronts would be Oh yeah. John Cooper and Skillet. So yeah. All of a sudden he gets a little bit older and he starts <laughs> writing like all these theological things and you're like, Well, I didn't It's super interesting because even then going back, like he said, um, their album Alien Youth has a lot of post mill undertones. He said Oh, it does. That's when he started that's when he started reading City of God by August Really? Augustine. Augustine. Yeah. Um you hear him talk about it. It's pretty interesting. But yeah. So that's all undertones of, which is like way before. And I guess I never obviously caught that back then. And he'd say he's not a theologian. So take it with a grain of salt. 
But he goes, I, my job is to make music, not write theology books. Oh, well, uh, but I'll tell you what. He does a good job and he knows his place and he's pretty great. I think Johnny Coops, I think, yeah, fan of the pod. not crazy about their music well, at this point. Well, not a fan of us. But, uh, eh, every once in a while, yeah. they get one going but, that uh, you'll, you'll like it. But his, 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 like, theology does seem to be really good. Surprisingly good for, like, because, you know, guys that write, you know, he's writing, like, arena rock mainly and songs about feeling invincible and things like that. Not the most complex song ideas, but then like when you talk there, but super. But then he's like in the background, this really actually smart and thoughtful guy is actually really surprising. Um, Yeah, yeah, Cooper stuff. There you go. Well, all right, we did it. We we talked through it. it. Maybe we made some people mad. We'll see. I don't think we did. I don't think we sat on too many toes. We just basically said that maybe people are overthinking the market piece. Yeah, and and I get why, like, I don't know. It's a weird thing to me in some ways that this is such a... uh, Talking about the subject is so emotional for people is weird to me. I don't fully understand it. But I recognize that it's there, and I appreciate it. I'm not saying, like, you're stupid. You might need to put a trigger warning at this episode. Yeah, I'm just saying, like, I understand that that's a phenomenon that happens. I don't fully get why, but it's there. Um it is. And hopefully cool. hopefully we talked about everything in a way that was uh I don't know, light in all the right ways and sober in all the right ways. So, we'll see. Yeah, you know, I feel pretty sober about it. All right. <laughs> I feel pretty sober about it. All right, we're wrapping it up. We're done with this. Moving on to the next episode. This has been Three Brothers Talking and we will see you next time.